0: Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. In today's episode, Pastor Heath Bauer walks us through the power of influence. What or who are the influencers in your life? And how are they influencing you? Today, as we journey through this, I hope you find enjoyment in this great message on the power of influence. If you are in the Ashland or Tri-State area, we'd love to see you. Stick around to the end and find out how you can connect with us here at Unity Baptist Church.
1: If you will, open your Bibles to 1 Timothy in chapter 2. We'll look briefly also at 1 Timothy 3, but it shouldn't be too hard to find once you're in 2. Okay, I made it easy on you. This morning's message is a measured response to our last Southern Baptist Convention. Being here in Kentucky, sometimes we can be a little insulated from what's happening all around the rest of the country. Let's acknowledge uh, we're surrounded by some pretty amazing churches. Uh, we're in a, we have a good, solid uh, KBC, Kentucky Baptist Convention, that we're a part of. Uh, we have a great uh, association that we are a part of. And I believe we have one of the most solid, conservative, and finest seminaries on the planet here in Louisville at uh, Southern, and so we're surrounded by a lot of very like-minded people. However, uh, across the country, it's they don't always see things the same way that we do. I want to just make you aware of some things that are being discussed and bantered around as a denomination, okay? Okay. And so this morning's message is a measured response to the last convention meeting that took place from June 11 to 15 with the National Convention. And at that convention, as it often is, many things are discussed. Uh, they, t- you know, they vote in a new president and things like that. But one of the things that came out most notably from this last convention meeting is about a six to seven minute speech from one of the churches that is part of the Southern Baptist Convention, and that's Saddleback Church. Uh, If you're familiar with uh, Pastor Rick Warren, very famous purpose-driven life guy, okay, that's the one. And what happened is Saddleback Church recently ordained three women pastors in their church. And the convention is trying to figure out what do we do with this? And I realize this is a very controversial subject. And even Southern Baptists, I'll tell you, they're not on the same page on this particular issue. And so you've got folks that believe that because it's against the, you know, against scriptural principles, it's against the confession of our faith that we hold together, uh, that churches which wish to do that uh, should not be a part of the Southern Baptist Convention. But at the moment, they have paused and said, no, we're not going to do that. Let's stop and let's do a word study on what it means to be a pastor, in other words, let's, let's stop and look here. You know, uh, can women be pastors you know, in, in, within the churches? And by the way, this has nothing to do with sexism or genderism or whatever kind of ism you want to add to that. It has everything to do with what the Word of God says. And so right now, the Southern Baptist Convention is doing a word study on what it means to be a pastor and whether or not women should be ordained as pastors in the convention. Okay? I want to say this. As a church... And don't take this any further than what I'm saying. As a church, our identity is not a Southern Baptist church. Are we affiliate with, as an independent church, we affiliate with the Southern Baptist Convention in so far as they follow the word of God. And the reason I have to say that is this, it doesn't matter what the Southern Baptist comes out and says about uh, the ordination of women pastors. As an independent church, we are going to follow whatever the word of God says. And that's the nature of this message this morning is we're going to look at what does the Bible say in the role of women in ministry uh, within the local church. Fortunately, we have, again, uh, the the most powerful voice speaking to that end at the convention was our very own Al Moeller, president of said Southern Seminary there in Louisville. And he says, if we have to do a word study on every single word in our confession, then we're doomed. We need to make sure that we hold to the confession which holds to the word of God. And so this morning, we're going to look at what the Bible says about women in ministry. And I'm going to tell you, again, this has nothing to do with culture. This has nothing to do with uh, a belief that men are greater than women. They're certainly not. In fact, the very first point of this message, I want you to hear this very clearly, is that men and women are made completely equal in Christ. However, equal doesn't mean identical, okay? A verse that I want to point you to is Galatians 3.28. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now there are some who would take this passage as to say because in Christ there is no male or female, therefore we, we can ignore the things that talk about gender in the Bible. And so when we talk about a uh, pastor being the husband of one wife, it doesn't matter because in Christ there's no male or female. Is that what this passage is saying? Let me just tell you emphatically, that is not at all what that verse is saying. Remember, he's in, in context. In context, the verses that come before and after always control the meaning. You don't like your words being plucked out of context and neither does God. And so in context, he's talking about the gospel. If you read through Galatians chapter three, you'll see he's talking about salvation. He uses the word faith. He talks about being baptized into Christ, immersed into Christ. That's what happens, First Corinthians twelve thirteen talks about that uh, by one spirit we've been baptized into one body. And so he's talking about the gospel. That when a person understands their sin before a holy God and God being our creator has every right to place demands upon us and, and require us to repent of our sins and turn to Jesus Christ in faith for the gospel, that it doesn't matter what background you come from. Doesn't matter if you're a man, doesn't matter if you're a woman, doesn't matter if you're a slave at the bottom end of the social spectrum, if you're free. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew and you were born under the covenant of God or you're a Gentile, you were born with parents who worshiped you know, Satan or you know, worshiped witchcraft. That when we, we come to Christ at the cross, the, the ground around the cross, as they say, is level. We all come to Christ equally with equal access and equal opportunity and God values us equally in Him. But it doesn't get rid of gender roles. Neither did it get rid of Jewish and Gentile identity. It's not like they were no longer Jews. Nor did it get rid of the the roles of the slave or the master. Remember, even in, if you've ever read Philemon, you guys even know where Philemon is, some of you? Okay. Um, Philemon, Paul, you have this runaway slave, Onesimus, ran away from his master and ended up getting caught. He was in prison, and God put him with Paul, led him to the Lord. And what did Paul do? Well, in Christ, there is no slave or free, so you keep running. No, he said, you need to go back to your master. You have a contract with him. You have a covenant with him. You need to go back to him, and I'm going to write a letter trying to smooth things out for you and get uh, Philemon to receive you back. And so it didn't get rid of roles. We need to mis- not misuse this scripture so that we can you know, play nice with where our culture is right now. So having said that, let's just come right out with it. Uh, If you flip one page over, make this easy on you, 1 Timothy chapter three, we'll just briefly answer the question, can a woman serve as an ordained pastor within the church? The answer very clearly is no, scripturally. And and by the way, let, let me qualify this, has nothing to do with ability. A lot, of you, a lot of you women are far more interesting speakers than some of us guys. You tell great stories, you're a lot of fun, you're very warm, you're very, uh, you've got a lot of passion and empathy. It has nothing to do with ability. Is it, is it intelligence? No. Men, there's a lot of reasons why your wives are the ones that handle your, your checkbook, okay? They're, you've got a lot of smart ladies out there. Does it have anything to do with just ability and strength? No. It has everything to do with simply what the Word of God has said. And so if you go to 1 Timothy chapter 3, he's talking about the qualifications of a pastor He says in verses one to two, the saying is trustworthy. When he says trustworthy, he's saying, this isn't the opinion of Paul. Quite frankly, if Paul or myself just wanted to allow women pastors, we'd do it in a heartbeat and I'll tell you why. You want something to get talked about, give it to a group of men. You want something to get done, put it in a group of women, man, they'd get things done. If I had the ability to hand over ministry and let women do exactly what I do, I'd be the first in line because pragmatically speaking, we got more women than men in the church and quite often the women are much more willing to jump in and serve and get things done. But I'm handcuffed to Scripture. I can't just, I can't just ignore Scripture, I've got to follow. I can't go to the right or to the left. I've gotta stay dead on with what the Bible says. So he says this saying is trustworthy, it's inspired. These words come from God, these are not the opinions of Paul. If anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, now pause there, an overseer, remember, the Bible uses three terms synonymously for this role. It's a pastor, he feeds and protects the sheep. He's an elder, he's an example to the flock, and he is an overseer. Someone who leads out strategically as to where the church should be going and, and, and making sure the church is healthy. He says, if anyone aspires to that office, he desires, by the way it says he, desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach and, what does your Bible say? the husband of one wife. Now, we already talked about what that means, a one-woman man. We're not going to go there today. What I want you to see is to be in the overseer role within the church, God has called upon men to lead there. You have to be the husband of one wife. And so the Bible is very, very clear as to who he wants to Uh, leading the church he has asked men to take that role and it's not a sexist thing it's a god thing it's just something that god has commanded you want you want to know why go ahead you know we'll see god in eternity if you're a believer you know we'll ask him then but in the meantime we're simply going to follow what he asks us to do now when it talks about here that he has to be the husband of one wife this isn't a general term the mate of one mate that they just need to be a moral individual it's the word andros Andros always refers to a male as opposed to a female, a masculine, a hairy one, the one that leaves the toilet seat up. It's a man, okay, it's not, he's not talking about uh, a woman here, just generally a person must be a moral person. Now is this what Paul's teaching, a departure from what was taught in the Old Testament? Is this something new where women were taking leadership roles all throughout the Bible uh, in spiritual institutions? And by the way, we're going to limit this to spiritual institutions. God says nothing about it if you want to go to be the mayor you know, of Ashland. You want to go do that, women? That's between you, the Lord, and your husband. Okay? You want to go operate a big business? The Bible's not going to argue with you on that one. You want to be the president of the United States? We're not talking about that. We're not talking about the subjection of women in a culture, and a society. We're not talking about the patriarchy, okay? It's always said with a sneer. Uh, we're talking about spiritual institutions, the things that God has created, the home, and for us today, the church, God has always called men to take spiritual leadership. And he's gonna give us good reasons for that. But if you look in the Old Testament, uh, Adam was the head of Eve. And when Adam was created, God created Adam, and he created Eve, we'll talk a little bit more on that later, but God worked through Adam to give him the spiritual commands and things. Uh, beyond that, Abraham, not Sarah, received the covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. God reaffirmed that to Isaac, not Rebekah, to Jacob, not Leah or Rachel. Beyond that, we see that uh, the, priests in, uh, the first, very first priest in the Bible, Melchizedek, in Genesis 14, was a man. All the Levitical priests were male. On this, the Sanhedrin, you know, the High Council of Israel, they were all men. Beyond that, we had Jesus and his apostles were all men. God has called, all throughout history, God has called men to take spiritual leadership. And some will think, well, yeah, again, but let me bring up that patriarchy word. That's because we were in a patriarchal society and we've progressed beyond that. We've grown beyond that as a society. And now we understand that there's nothing different between man and woman. There's you know, some physiological differences, perhaps, you know, but there's, there's nothing different between man and woman. That's what we've learned. We've, we've progressed as a society. Let me say this very clearly. To go beyond what scripture says is not progression, it's rebellion. This is what, when, we, when God says something very clearly, and we say, yeah, but let's close the book, because society knows better now. Remember this, God, one of God's attributes, something that describes him is that he is immutable. It means he's unable to mutate, God doesn't change. God's moral law does not change. It's always been wrong to murder, it's always been wrong to this, it's always been wrong to steal, and to insult, and to, to hurt, and. Maim other people. These things are God never changes in these things. God's word it does not change. New translations because our language changes, but God's word itself does not change. Just because culture changes, and by the way, can I tell you this issue of women in ministry is not a new issue. This issue has been going around since Paul's day, and you're going to see that because Paul's going to have to directly teach to this effect uh, in First Timothy chapter two. And so, no, it's, it's uh, it's not progression to ignore what the Bible says so that we can shake hands with and play nice with society. Now, some may say, well, you know what? Actually, there are examples in the Bible in the Old Testament. One of the judges was Deborah. In fact, she's even called a prophetess, okay? Now, remember, uh, when we're talking about Deborah, we're talking about prophetesses. We're, and by the way, when talking about using a prophetic gift, we're talking about those who proclaim divine counsels. They have a revelation from God, and they proclaim it to other people. We have people who use that to this day. What I'm doing right now in proclaiming the Word of God, if you will, is the exercise of a prophetic gift. I'm not telling the future. God is not giving me new prophecies. But every time I open up this book of prophecy, it's a prophecy, okay? We're, we're prophesying. So we have women that use that gift of prophecy today, don't we? Uh, someone my wife loves to listen to, a lady named Nancy DeMoss-Walgamuth, excellent teacher, expositor of Scripture, but she doesn't teach in mixed groups. Why? Because she knows what the Word of God says about that. So women can be uh, described as a prophetess and things like that throughout Scripture, but it never clearly outlines what that prophetic gift looked like in the exercise of that gift, and so we have to assume that they followed everything else that we saw in Scripture, and that they, uh, that they submitted themselves to the male leadership of those spiritual institutions. Now some may go, well, you know, I can think of an example of a, an area where a woman was teaching a man in the Bible. Let's talk about Aquila and Priscilla in the New Testament, uh, where you, they heard Apollos, if you will, at a tent meeting, you know, and he's preaching about the baptism of John, which is an outdated deal. Now we're under believer's baptism, and so Aquila and Priscilla, afterward, not in the service, but afterward, They took him aside, you wanna read about this, it's in Acts chapter 18, verses 24, 25. And they they taught him the right way, they they reoriented his doctrine. But understand this, this was not in a mixed group, public setting, uh, in the church, gathering together as church. This is, if you will, a private counseling situation with a husband and wife together working in tandem. And so in a counseling situation, in some unique situations, maybe you're teaching on parenting in a small type of thing or whatever, and husband and wife are kind of working together, we're talking about the public proclamation of the word of God in church. God has called for the men to do that, to open up the word. And so this is different than just what we're talking about today. Uh, their counseling situation versus a proclamation of the word in a mixed audience. Well, having said that, let's flip back one page to 1 Timothy 2, this is where the bulk of our preaching will be today. Before Paul gets to 1 Timothy chapter 3, where he's going to say very boldly, He desires a good thing if he wants to be a pastor, and he must be the husband of one wife. He can't just say that and move on because there's going to be some some ladies who are upset. Well, hang on, what about me? Can't I be an ordained pastor in a church? And so Paul's going to lead us through right before he gets to teach on that. He, He begins to teach on Uh, his expectations for ministry between men and women in the church. And the first thing we're gonna see here is number two, God ordained men to lead in spiritual institutions. If you look in verse eight, it says, I desire then that in every place, pause, every place means this isn't just, oh, that was just the church Paul was in, or that was just the culture of the Middle East then, but we're the United States. He's saying in every place, what I'm, this passage I'm about to share with you, this applies to all churches everywhere. So I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. Now, the initial reading of this, one might just think that he's referring to mankind. This is just a general admonition to pray, but that's not what the original languages say. It's the Greek word on air. Again, referring to the male as opposed to a female. He wants them to lead out in prayer. He wants them leading spiritually. You can see them. He's opening up this worship service. He says, I want, them to, to, I want the men to lead out, lifting up holy hands. By the way, it has nothing to do with raising your hand in worship. If you're a hand raiser, you know, praise God, you know, that's fine. We're, we don't have hand raising police here. You know, if you don't wanna raise your hand, that's fine. We're not gonna look down on you and say, why aren't you following the Holy Spirit? Okay. This has nothing to do with raising your hands in worship. He's, talking, he's raising hands in prayer, which was a, a, a popular way of, raise, of praying publicly when you were leading worship, when you're in a, a large group and just representing their devotion to God and pointing their, their prayers up to him. But he says, I want men to do this. I want men to lead out in this worship service way, and I want them to do this. And when they do, by the way, the, he has qualifications for them too. He says, I want you to do this without anger or quarreling. And so men, when you're going to be leading spiritually in a church, you can't take what you do out there and import it into the church. You might be rough and mean out there and intimidating and use fear tactics outside the church to get your way with your neighbor or to get your way on the job. We don't bring that into the church. Anger is the idea, uh, it's, it's a Greek word that means desire with, uh, like desire with, what is it, frustration or what is it? Desire with grief. Okay, it's just this, it's this grief and you're, just, you're so bad wanting to control and, and, to, and to manipulate things. He says men can't do that within the church when you're leading, we don't do that. We don't use anger, we don't use quarreling. It means to be contentious. We don't use contentions in the church to get our way. We don't fight, we don't argue, we don't, uh, we don't use anger and just this grief and just this overwhelming passion to I want my way to be done. We don't do that in church. It's a surefire way you got someone uh, to tell that they're not walking in the Spirit because the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. It's all those things. It's not anger and it's not quarreling. And so men can't just take all their testosterone, okay, that they use outside the church and to come into the church and, and try to wrangle the church their way. We don't lead like that. God's people don't lead like that. Well, number three, I want you to see that God wants women to be known for their godliness. Look in verse nine. He says, likewise, in other words, in the same way as the men, they have to be godly and holy, women have to be holy too. And so he's speaking to the women here. Likewise also that the women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair, not with gold, pearls, or costly attire, but what is proper for a woman for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly and with all submissiveness. Okay, so again, he just says likewise. Just like the men have to be godly, they have to control their natural urges and desires, and they can't import worldly things into the church. Likewise, a woman should live in a holy way, also without quarreling, also without anger. But beyond this, then he speaks to how she dresses. What should the woman be known for when she comes to church? He speaks to modesty. Now, let me say this about modesty. Modesty in a church, it's something that we preach and we allow people to honor God, okay? We aren't gonna gonna be the modesty police here in the church. I've been to camps before where people take rulers out to the girls' dresses and things like that. You wanna do that in camp? Whatever, we're not gonna bring rulers to church. I was a, my first ministry, I was a youth pastor and we were reaching all kinds of kids. And there was uh, kids who weren't born again, kids from unchurched, you know, homes, moms and dads were in bad situation. And the kids, they show up to youth group and we love them and we give them the gospel. And then we would get them to come to big church with us as well, not just come to youth events. And there was one particular Sunday morning, one of these girls that we had kind of reached out to and she'd been coming and now she decided for the first time she was gonna to come to church that Sunday morning. Well, a prominent woman in the church, while this girl was still in the foyer, now this girl, again, she is lost and she had a skirt that was probably a little too short, I'll be honest. But this, this prominent woman in the church comes up to her in the foyer and says, oh, basically, you can't wear that. You're dressing immorally and that doesn't please God. You shouldn't be wearing that to church. Do you think that girl ever came back to church again? She did not. Because we're sitting here looking on the outside. Now, granted, we should be dressing modestly in church. She's lost. And again, what does modesty look like? It's something that we preach in a church and we allow you to honor God with how you dress. You wanna wear a suit, great. You wanna wear a shirt, it's fine. I mean, please always wear a shirt. You know, but what kind of shirt? (laughs) Gotta qualify that today. Somebody's gonna take that home and misapply that. You've got to, but modesty is something that we honor God with from our hearts. Now, kids don't use this sermon as as to why you can go home and tell daddy, you know, daddy, you can't tell me what to wear. You preach it, but I'm gonna do what I want. That's not you. you. You listen to your dad. You listen to your mom. And you dress modestly, ladies, okay? And by the way, you don't want a guy that's attracted to you just because of the way you dress. It's not the right kind of guy. Instead, he says women should be known for their good works. Don't try to appeal to the lowest common denominator of man and just say, hey, notice me for how I do my hair. Notice me for all the gold and things that I wear because of my wealth. Notice me for my body. Look at my body. No, our our dress should draw people's attention to our face where we can honor God. You can't see much about God right here, you know, but right here you can. So let's let's point people's direction and attention to what they can see where I, I show my godliness through my face. And better yet, he says they should be known for For what? Their good works. That's what should adorn your nature and your character. It has nothing to do with your appearance. And so he speaks to that. And then he says something that, I'll be honest with you, it's going to be very off-putting for our culture. He says, let a woman learn quietly and with all submissiveness. Why is this off-putting? It's because our culture has programmed us that this phrase should be off-putting. Our culture, you've noticed it, we're in a gender war right now. We're trying to not simply say that men and women have no kind of different roles. Men were already equal with women, okay? Men and women were already equal. But they're trying to say there's no roles. And furthermore, now our society's coming to a place where they're like, there's no gender altogether. You wanna change your body? You wanna you keep your body the same, but identify in a different way. You be your own God. You decide who you are. And that's where our culture and society is. And so our culture is training us that you should be offended by statements that the Bible makes like this. And if you are offended at these statements, it shows how much of the world's philosophy has affected our own thinking. We've been brainwashed. How do we wash it again into what's true? We read the word of God and we follow it. And so he says, let a woman learn quietly and with all submissiveness. This quiet has nothing to do with a woman not talking in church. Okay, women teach other women. Women teach children. Women even share testimony. Uh, remember, uh, Peter even asked for Sapphira to give testimony. Now, granted, she lied at that time and was killed by God, but still, women were obviously allowed to be speaking in church. He's not talking about women coming to church and don't ever talk. He's talking about women should be in a learning role as oppo- in a public setting as opposed to standing here where I am right now in proclaiming the word of God to a mixed group. So don't take quietly further than what the word of God does. But then he says, with all submissiveness, that all of us, by the way, every believer in our humility, we should be known as a submissive people. The Bible says we are to submit to God. We submit to one another, Ephesians 5 says. Long before the Bible ever says, wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord, he says we are to submit unto one another, to put the needs of others before ourselves, to esteem others, Philippians 2, as being better than ourselves, having this mind in us, which was in Christ Jesus, which was humility. And so as a people of God, we're identified by our submission. And how a woman shows her submission to God is... the same way man does. We submit to the God-given authorities God has given to us. It's a fruit of the spirit called meekness. It's a willing to line up on God-given authorities. How do you know that Heath is, a, is submitted to God? Because Heath is submitted to the authorities in his life. Policeman pulls me over and asks me to give him my license registration. I don't say, okay, tell me about your quiet time. You know, I don't, I don't flip it on him like that. I, I submit under them and I'm respectful to my police. I'm respectful to any teachers that are in my life. I'm respectful to every authority in my life. It shows my submission to God. And likewise here, for a woman to, uh, to assume in a mixed group the role of a learner as opposed to the, the leader, the teacher, shows her submission to God. Now, <clears throat> again, it doesn't mean that a woman doesn't have ministry. Titus chapter 2, those of you who came to this adorned pre-treat thing, You heard very clearly, women are supposed to be very active in preaching and instruction, and there's a time and place for that. He says, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not slaves to much wine. They are to, what does your Bible say? Teach. Are women silent in church? Absolutely not. They are to be teaching. But he says, I want you to teach what is good so as to train who? Other younger women. To love their husbands and their children. So women teach women. We also see women teaching men. Men. Second Timothy 1 verse 5, Paul was talking about Timothy. He never talks about Timothy's dad, by the way. He talks about his mother and his grandmother and says, I know they're training you and the faith that's in them, I'm sure is in you. And so women obviously are teaching uh, their children and other children within the church. Romans 16, we see Paul crediting, it's not on the scriptures, so I'm just gonna outline it for you. Romans 16, Paul's closing out his book and he's crediting all these people. It's sort of like at the end of a movie in the credits roll, you know? Paul is giving the credits as to everybody who helped him in his ministry. And if you read Romans 16, you'll see fully half of those people, they're all women. Women are extremely active in ministry. But in a mixed group, they do what most men do. they're, They're in a service role or they're teaching women, they're teaching children. Okay, But women have a very powerful, influential ministry in the church. However, number four, God has ordained that in a mixed group, the men are supposed to teach. Okay, And by the way, we're going to see here, this is not just about holding pastoral office. He says in verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, this is a... This, is, this verse is at the heart of a debate right now also within the Southern Baptist Convention. Okay, you'll have some who believe that women should be pastors, some who say no. You say some, well, women shouldn't be pastors, but it's okay if they preach on a Sunday morning. You know, and you have people within the Southern Baptist Convention who have held that in very prominent positions. Those of you who have done Beth Moore studies. Beth Moore was of this position. And she would put it out there on social media. Shh, don't tell anybody, but I'm preaching in such and such a church on Mother's Day. You know, she knew full well she was going against both what, what scripture said, but also the confession of, of the Southern Baptist Church. But she wanted to skirt around that. And eventually, she, by the way, she left the Southern Baptist Convention over this very issue. But many will say, you know, it's just, you know, what do we say to a Beth Moore? Is this just prohibiting that a woman serving in a pastor office, or does it go beyond that? Look at it again. I mean, honestly, you tell me. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. And again, we're talking about in the context of the church, not out there in the world. What does that mean? It means what it says. If you just read that plainly, it, the meaning's pretty obvious. There's not a whole lot of conclusions. I don't think I need to parse any Greek verbs here. I think it's pretty clear what it's saying. He doesn't allow women in these mixed groups to teach and exercise authority within the local church over other men. And again, it has nothing to do with men and women, you know, one being better than the other. It's just what the Bible says. Paul says, I do not permit. Permit here has the idea of someone, of of restricting someone from doing something that they're trying to do. You go to the airport, maybe you're you're overseas and you found this cool little handmade knife and you try to bring it in a carry-on. We know better than that now, but some people maybe they forget. And you try to come in the airport and you want to bring that knife onto the airplane so that you can bring it home and show your friends. But what's TSA gonna tell you? (laughs) Well, you may want to bring that onto the plane, but you cannot, that's just the rules. I have to follow the rules. What does the TSA guy think about it personally? He probably didn't care much, but it doesn't matter what he thinks, it's what his rules say. It's the same thing with us. It doesn't matter what I think as a person or how I feel as a person, or if I feel empathetic, it has everything to do with what the Word of God says. And so there's going to be people who, like Beth Moore and many others, who are like, no, we should be able to do this. And Paul says, I do not permit. Okay, you may want to, but we are restricted by what the word of God says. He says, what are they they prohibited from doing? He says, exercising authority over a man or teaching. That they're not to be teaching in a mixed group over men. If men aren't present, you go do whatever you feel like but with men present, he says he does not allow them to teach nor exercise authority over a man, that they are not to be in some leadership strategic role over, over men in the church. Nothing to do with ability, everything to do with what the word of God says. You see, this is, anybody who argues against this, by the way, they're not making a biblical exposition uh, argument, it's a cultural argument. They're saying in culture, we've progressed, but you're not going to make that argument from scripture. And then Paul tells you why, because everybody wants to know why. Well, why, Paul? What's the reason behind this? Verse 13, he says, for Adam was formed first and then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Paul says for. For means because of. I'll tell you why. This is why. I give you this command, but here, let me, let me explain it a little further. Here's why. This isn't some new command Paul is giving. Paul's saying this has been this way since creation. Adam was formed first. And you might ask yourself, why does that even matter? Why does it matter that Adam was formed first? Why is he going all the way back to creation to talk about why women aren't to be teaching or exercising authority over a man in a local church context? He says Adam was formed first. Remember, when God created the animals, he created all the animals in the same way. He got two giraffes, male and female, same time, here you go. Why, because it doesn't matter who leads. We created two whales, same time, male and female, sent them off. Two butterflies, if you will, (laughs) male and female, sent them off. That's because in the animal world, they cannot honor God in this way. They can't choose to submit. They simply have instinct. And in fact, in the animal world, you may see things where, you know, you got a group of chimpanzees and maybe it's a matriarchal society there. That's fine. God didn't ask any more of them from that. You know, you go to the praying mantis, you know, after after mating, the, the female will eat the male that's a rough honeymoon, but uh, you know, in the animal world, they're not subject to this, but God, if you'll notice in creation, God didn't create man and woman in the same way as he did animals, did he? God did something really odd. Male and female, he created them. Male and female, he created them. He sends them off. He comes to humankind, and what does he do? He creates man by himself. Did God make a mistake? Did God just forget? Oh man, I got so excited about this man here, I just forgot about the woman. Is that what God was thinking? Not at all. God had very intentional purposes behind creating the man first. So if you read through the creation account in Genesis chapter two, you'll find God created the man. And then what does he do? He gives man the command to work. What's the implication? That whether your wife works outside the home or not is between you guys, but the man doesn't get a choice. Men, you've got to lead your families in providing for them. In fact, the Bible says, if a man does not provide for his own, he's worse than an unbeliever. Okay, so God gives him the command to work. Beyond this, He then gives man the spiritual commands. In the middle of the garden, I'm gonna put you in here, there's a tree, you don't eat of it. You can eat all the other trees, all the fruit, but this one tree, it's gonna look good, but you can't do it. And so God gives him this single spiritual command and to Adam alone. And then he creates the woman so that when the woman shows up on the scene, she understands we got this guy working and leading spiritually, he's passing on what God says to me and it's clearly understood that prior to the fall, there was still submission. Submission isn't a result of the fall, by the way, ladies. It was something that God created at the beginning. Why, because submission doesn't mean you're less than someone else. Remember, there's submission in the Godhead. Jesus is submissive to the Father. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus says the Father is greater than I, not stronger, because he's equally powerful. Remember, the Bible says that in Jesus, the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. Everything that makes God, God is in Jesus. He's completely equal with God, and yet he's submissive to him. The Father sends him. The Holy Spirit is also submissive to Jesus. Jesus says, I send the Holy Spirit. It's called the doctrine of procession. So there's submission within the Godhead, why? Because office does not determine your worth and identity. The position that you hold does not determine your worth and identity. Where does that idea come from? It comes from outside the church. The world tells you that. You're nobody unless you're on top. You're nobody unless you're a president or a vice president. Well, ladies, if it's all about our position that gives us worth and value in God's eyes, we're in trouble because guess what? Most men are in a submissive role within this church too. Most men aren't teaching, most men aren't leading, most men aren't a pastor. So if you tell people, you know, if you're you're nothing unless you're able to hold this office, you have alienated the vast majority of everybody within the church. It's just not true. So he says, Adam was formed first. And then he says, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. What's he talking about here? The woman was deceived by the serpent The man willfully led humankind into sin and rebellion. Remember, the Bible doesn't accredit, even though the woman, if you will, sinned first in her deception, the deception of her, the Bible credits sin passing through the man because man willfully led earth into rebellion. The Bible says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered to the world in death by sin, so that sin passed to all men, so that all have sinned. Sin came in through one man, not through the woman. It's through the seed of the man. It's why God can ca- cause Mary to give birth using her genetic material, but we don't have a fallen being. Sin has passed through the male. Because man willfully led in. The woman was deceived, man willfully led there, and guess what God is asking him to do now? You're going to be the ones that lead us back to God. You got us into this mess. You're gonna be the one to lead the family back to the Lord. Additionally, he's talking about the man was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor, had that stigma, okay? And so he's talking about when God has ordained someone to lead in a particular position, it's because he's gifted them to do it. God has ordained me to lead as a pastor, so guess what? God has given me certain attributes that are necessary for leading within a church. It's the same thing with other men in in spiritual institutions like the home. There are certain uh, qualities within the male that God wants leading the home. Is it because he's better? No, he's different. But whatever is different about that man, and again, men or women are different, not just physiologically, but sociologically and emotionally, whatever it is that God put in the man, he put it in there because he wants that man to lead. That's what God wants there. And this has nothing to do with society, everything to do with just scripture. That's what he's talking about here, is that there's differences between men and women, and God is desiring that men will get beyond themselves and to take leadership. Because what's the natural default state of the man? It's that he doesn't lead. Men left to themselves, a lot of times, they're happy just to work their job and they just wanna come home and they just wanna kick their shoes off and watch the game. Spiritual leadership of the home does not come naturally to them, it comes from submitting to God. Even in the church, the natural default, I've been all around the world, the natural default is the women are gonna wanna lead a lot of times, and then the men, they wanna kick back and sit back and rest. That's the default of our flesh. We've gotta get beyond our flesh, and we've gotta take spiritual leadership because God has commanded us to. I want you to see number five, that God has given women, however, a powerful influential force within the church. Remember, women have tremendous influence on what happens in the world. Whether it's Abigail convincing David not to murder her husband Nabal, by the way, whose name means fool. Who names their kid that? But she convinced him not to. She had powerful influence on the outcome of what was happening in life. Uh, Solomon had women who were influencing him. Now, albeit for bad, (laughs) he he was a man given all the wisdom of the world and what did he do in the end of his life? He turned his back on the God who gave him the wisdom and he built Temples to idols and false gods because of the women that were there. Women, you have tremendous influential power in the world. Tremendous influence. We want to make sure that we wield that for good. And again, what is most important in life is not the office you hold, but the influence that we use in the world that really matters. Paul talked about this here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to talk about it a little bit more. We're going to talk about spiritual gifts this summer coming up but I'm gonna use it as just a reference here. He's talking about in the church, we have lots of different gifts and abilities, and we're not supposed to be jealous of what other people have. Maybe you're jealous you wanna be pastor. You know, well, did God gift you in that way? Then pursue it. Or sometimes we're jealous because maybe I don't have the gifts that this one has or this one has, and and some are very upward and upfront things. Maybe you're serving as a deacon, you're serving as a teacher, and that's very visible in the church. And maybe you're, you're a behind-the-scenes person. and Maybe you're kind of like, well, why, why, why am I not more visible within the church? He says this in 1 Corinthians 12. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. For, further on, he says, on the contrary, the parts of the body which seem weaker are indispensable. He says, on those parts of the body which we think are less honorable, we bestow greater honor. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division within the body, that the members may have the same care for one another. In other words, the hand is very visible. We see our hands. You don't probably think too much about your spleen, not thinking too much about your liver or your gallbladder, not until one of them gives you trouble. But the hand takes care of the body in such a way as to take care of that which is inside, that which is invisible. And similarly with spiritual gifts in the church, you may not have a highly visible role or a visible office in the church, but those who do hold that office don't use that office for themselves. They use it to lift up and to encourage and to, to draw attention to those less visible parts. It's the same thing in the home. Husbands, we don't use that position of spiritual leader in the home so that we can get the home to do what they want for me and everybody, you know, serve me, do what I want. No, the position of leadership is you have the distinct privilege of laying down your life and giving up everything you want to do what's best for those who are serving under you. The says, Bible says that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. What did he do for the church? He died. He did what was best for the church. Husbands, how do we lead our wives? We die. So when something good for her is something that's gonna hurt me, I'll hurt myself to do what's good for her. I'm going to die to what I want to do what's good for her, to lift her up. That's what leadership looks like and it's what it looks like in the church. Pastor doesn't use his position in the church to glo- have the church glorify himself. What's he do? He's gonna to point to other people and he's gonna lift them up and thank you and hey, notice this and hey, let's give a hand for it. Look what he did and we don't draw, he doesn't use it to draw attention to himself, to glorify himself. That's what, not what leaders do, okay? Well, I want you to look here about this position of influence in verse 15. He's talking about the power that a woman wields in a certain area of life that is unique to women. He says, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, this is an odd verse. What does that mean? She's saved through childbearing. Does it mean women are born again because they had children? It has nothing to do with that. Okay, you're not not saved and born again going to heaven because you've got a couple of toddlers in tow. He's talking about uh, a woman's position and significance and influence and losing that stigma that he just talked about of transgressor. He's talking about uh, she loses that. Her, Her influence is powerful in a particular area of life that affects the entire rest of the world. He says childbearing. Now I know that's probably triggering some folks right now talking about a woman and then associating her with childbearing, but God does. Society may not like that, but God associates that. And he says, women don't, don't forget how powerful an influence you have on the entire future of humanity just with the influence you have through childbearing. How powerful is it? You know, husbands, we go out and we work a job and we provide for our family or maybe we do something you know, that has some kind of lasting significance or influence. And if we don't do our job well, maybe we can't take that Disney vacation this summer. But if mothers don't do their job well, the entire society collapses in on itself. And I'm not even joking. Remember in Deuteronomy 6, the Bible sees the home, not the church by the way, but the home is the nucleus of spiritual development. Remember in Deuteronomy 6, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. This shall first be on your heart. You need to be a disciple. He says, but then you, parents, will diligently teach your children when you get up, when you lay down, as you go about your day, that we're just supposed to spend time with our children. And when we do, we are supposed to pass that knowledge on to them. And that powerful, influential force is seen in no greater ways than the mother to child relationship. Dad has great influence on the children. I'm not going to take that away. But who generally spends the greatest deal of time with the kids? It's mom. And he's reminding parents, don't devalue motherhood. Society will. They're gonna say, you're only as important as women as the office that you hold. Women, you're only as important as the money you can bring home. What does God say? Never forget the power of the influence of a mother in the lives of your children. When Israel forgot that and they didn't raise up their kids and there arose a generation after Joshua who didn't know the Lord in, in the book of Judges, what does it say? And there arose a generation who did not know the Lord, and every man did that which is right in his own eyes. And Judges leads to the darkest chapter of Israel's history as they continued to fall away from God, and literally their entire society collapsed in on itself. Is it any wonder then that in the US, since we have devalued motherhood so much that we see our society collapsing in on itself and our children raise up, and they don't have the same values we did, why? Because we don't value motherhood as a culture. Mothers, your powerful influential force is absolutely necessary. If dad doesn't earn that much money or if dad doesn't become the vice president of a company, that's one thing. But if moms don't value and understand how important you are in the development of your children, our society is gonna collapse in on itself over time. It's proven all throughout scripture. Mothers, you have tremendous influential power. She is saved through childbearing if you're a godly mom if you continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Tremendous influential power. Can I give you just one epic illustration we'll, we'll finish out here? The most powerful illustration I've ever heard of of the power of, of motherhood. Came from a, a book that was written by a fellow named A. E. Winship, and it was comparing the progeny of one family to, to, to the descendants of another. One who was a drain on society, morally bankrupt, and then one who lifted up all aspects of American society for God and for good. Uh, One of those books that was written about this lady was called uh, Marriage to a Difficult Man. Any other women wanna write that book? Don't raise your hand. This woman was married to a difficult man. Do you know who that difficult man was? (laughs) This is Sarah Edwards, wife of Jonathan Edwards. Remember in school we had to read that uh, sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God? It's that guy. Famous Puritan preacher, powerful preacher, impacted many, wrote many books. But these books were written not about him and his impact, but on the impact that Sarah Edwards had upon her 11 children. And 150 years later, A.E. Winship decided to research this woman and the impact of motherhood. And for 150 years following her, looking at her children, her great-grandchildren, her great-grandchildren, he discovered this from her, and by the way, he credits this to her because Jonathan Edwards often wasn't at home. Back then, often, the men were just so focused on the ministry, they had almost nothing to do with their children, and so he credits this to Sarah Edwards and her influence on her 11 children. Her, her descendants went on to produce this. 13 college presidents, 65 college professors, 100 lawyers and the dean of a law school, 30 judges, 66 physicians and the dean of a medical school, 80 holders of public office, three United States senators, three mayors of large cities, governors of three states. A vice president of the United States, She was uh, Sarah Edwards may not know this, was grandmother to Aaron Burr. From her came a controller of the United States Treasury, members of their family. They wrote 135 books, edited 18 journals. They produced dozens upon dozens and dozens of pastors. They sent out over 100 missionaries. Many of her offsprings went to be trustees of mission boards. And he also says many large banks, insurance companies, big businesses, they were all directed by them. Furthermore, they were superintendents of large coal mines, iron plants, silver mines, and oil interests. And then Winship reports this. He says, there is scarcely any major industry that hasn't been radically affected by the descendants of Sarah Edwards. As a people, I'm not even just talking about women here, but even men, when we desire position and titles over the influence that we wield in this world, we're desiring the wrong thing. We're desiring our glory, not necessarily the glory of God. Sometimes we have positions, but it's not the position that's important to us, it's the influence that we wield in getting the gospel into a dark world and changing the lives of people to produce disciples of Jesus Christ. And so what, what we measure our life by is not the rank or the offices that we've held, not the incomes that we've produced, but by the lives that have been shaped by the influence of us in their life. No wonder, Paul said, Yet, she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness and self-control. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you that you have given us a very clear message from your word. We don't have to guess and wonder. We don't have to stumble when society begins to shift and to change on us but that we have a more sure word, an anchor for our souls here, God, that through Jesus Christ and through the words that he has given to us, that we don't have to wonder what's right and wrong. We don't have to wonder how to go about life. We just have to be willing to close our ears to the arguments of the world, which is constantly shifting and changing, and instead to just rest in the immovable bedrock of God's word, which will never change, which your word tells us will never pass away, that your word is forever settled in heaven. It's not going to shift. It's not going to change on us all of a sudden. And so, Lord, help us have the moral courage simply to stand on what the word of God says, no matter what culture, no matter what society, or even a denomination ends up ruling as to what they believe is right and wrong. God, may we have the courage to stick to your word, to hold to you, to show our submission to you, God, by submitting to the leaders, both men and women, the leaders that we have in our life, as Romans 13:1 says, that all authority comes from God and all authorities that are there have been established by God. Lord, may we show our love to you by, by loving and respecting and honoring the, the authorities you've placed in our life. And may we find a joy and a peace in just knowing that you will care for us as we submit ourselves to the authorities you've given to us in our life. And may we do this and hold fast despite where culture may go. We ask in Christ's name.
0: Thank you for spending time with us today. If you would like to make a decision to ask Christ into your heart, click on the link in the show notes and we will be able to help you find your way to Jesus. If you enjoyed today's message, give our podcast channel some love by liking and subscribing to it. And as promised, if you would like more information about Unity, you can connect with us at UnityBaptistAshland.com or on Facebook at UBCAshland. Thank you for spending the day with us. We hope that you have a blessed day.